Welcome back to another episode of the Own Your Eating Podcast. We have something very special for you today. I was recently in Oklahoma at Twice Bitten CrossFit with my good friends Rob and Trammy. And Rob and I sat down for what was nearly two hours and talked about his story. His story is incredible. I'm not going to spoil any of it, but you can listen to it. It is a tearjerker, so be prepared to cry. So if you're driving, you might want to pull over. If you're at the office, you're going to need some tissues. It's an amazing story. I'm proud to know him, proud to be his friend. He inspires me, and I'm so excited for you guys to listen to this story. It's all about Rob's journey in and out of fitness. You're going to love it. You're going to want to reach out to him after. I'll give you that information, but here it is. Up next, my interview with Rob Grupe. All right, we are at Twice Bitten CrossFit in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Yes. And I'm with Rob, and Trammy's back there hiding. But this is my second time here visiting you guys. And after the first time here, I left very excited, motivated, inspired. And let me explain why. First of all, if you're not watching the video... You have to understand what Rob looks like. I'll put it easily for you to understand. A monster. <laughs> um, so, how tall are you? I'm about 6'2", 6'3". 6'2", 6'3", and about, what, three, 300 pounds? How tall are you? <laughs> I mean, how much do you weigh? About, about 220. 220, and if you haven't already, he's on Facebook. If you check out his Facebook, you'll see how lean both he and Trammy are. Are you, are you on Instagram personally? Yes. And what is that? It's a uh, Rob Groupie. Rob Groupie, G R U P E yes. for those. So we we met because a, a mutual friend of ours, Noah from Goose Island CrossFit, connected us to so I can come out here and work with the box and develop the coaches. Because this story can go all over the place, but we'll start it from there. They run one of the most successful boxes in the world. How many members do you currently have? Uh, we're right at about 350 right now. 350 members, and I think more impressive than how many members they have are the systems you guys put in place and the development you implement, not just for your coaching staff, but for the both of you. When I say both of you, I'm referring to Rob and Trammy because they are a team. Correct, Trammy? Yes. <laughs> so, so there power she is. Team. They are a power team. And you guys are really developing yourselves, which is what I want to talk about. So let's give a brief background, because I was unaware of this, and I think it's one of the best parts. I don't know. Once you hear it, you may or may not agree that it's the best part, but I think Rob and I have similar mindsets that without our pasts, we wouldn't be where we are currently. So let's let you talk a little bit. Okay. I guess it's kind of where to start on that. Let's, um, well, you, you grew up in this area, Oklahoma, mm -hmm. uh, you know, graduated high school. Yeah. And then you became an entrepreneur. Okay. So basically I was a fat kid growing up. Uh, my dad got me into bodybuilding when I was about 11. And uh, I really got hooked on that. Um, just like an event that happened, like me getting beat up basically by some older boys when I was 11, um, really turned me into like the feeling that I had after that experience uh, was just like one of humiliation. You know, like I felt like, why didn't I do something more? You know, uh, why didn't I defend myself more? Because I basically just cowered in a sense in that situation, but it really just ignited a fire within me that I don't ever want that to happen again. I don't ever want to feel like that again. So that started me on the mission of like, I wanted to be strong, you know, I wanted to, uh, so I started really following a lot of Arnold Schwarzenegger stuff and really got into the, to bodybuilding, read everything I could about that, uh, to just be as big and strong as I could be. So that started me on the path of resistance training, and that was my love, my passion. 
And I did that consistently up until, and I'm, you know, leaving a lot of things out here. I had a, a, a low back injury probably about 16 or so years ago. And, uh, that really like took my identity from me. Um, it got me hooked on painkillers really bad. And, uh, I was also involved with, you know, a destructive lifestyle. I, you know, I was, I was selling drugs. I was taking drugs at that point as well. And, uh, things really like spiraled out of control until, uh, what, what brought all that to an end was I fell asleep at a stoplight and woke up to the police pulling me out of my vehicle and I had drugs and a gun on me. Like that's how out of control life had gotten. And, uh, so I had to have an attorney and I was going through court and my attorney was like, you know, this no big deal. Like it's your first offense. You know, you just get some probation, something like that. Um, but it didn't work that way. And that day in court, uh, the judge ended up giving me a 20 year prison sentence. So life changed, you know, in that instant as, you know, they're cuffing me up as my family's crying, you know, it became very real, uh, you know, what was happening, but I made a decision that day that I was going to change my life and that I was going to help other people change their lives as well. So I also decided, you know, that I was going to make every day count, that there would not be one day I could look back on and think, you know, why didn't I use this time more wisely? So I spent seven years, six months and 18 days locked up. And, uh, you know, I'll never forget the nights that I would just lay there, you know, staring at a spot on the wall or the ceiling and just thinking like, man, you know, I can't wait until I can just get out there and have the opportunity to struggle, barely get by and live paycheck to paycheck. Like, just let me get that. Because when everything is taken from you, like your perspective changes, you know, it made me realize how people can move to this country from a third world country and become so successful is because they have that contrast. You know, it's like, I get to do these things versus, oh man, I got to do that. Right. So it really changed my perspective and gave me an appreciation for life and opportunity that I wouldn't otherwise have that, you know, and a deep moral obligation to really give back and make a difference because when it was in the time of my life when I was on drugs, selling drugs. Um, you know, I negatively influenced myself. I negatively influenced other people, you know, and I can never change that. But what I can do now is make a difference every day moving forward. So as shitty as a lot of that experience was, me being locked up, you know, I took away from it that appreciation and different perspective, and I did make every day count. You know, I, I read, uh, I focused on getting my body back into shape. I read so many books. Uh, How I, many books do you think you've read? Because, I mean, every time we chat, and I want to go into your morning routine down the road here, but how many books do you think you've read in your lifetime or since since that day you went to prison? Probably a thousand. Yeah. I mean, what's, what's hard for me to understand is only having known you for maybe the last six months is you're a gentle giant, if you will. Uh-huh. And I don't know you out a ton. Charmy, is that correct? Is he a gentle giant? Yeah. I, it's, I, I would agree. It's hard to envision you in that previous life. Were you the same, I want to say the same person because I don't think you were, but were you the same, did you carry yourself the same way or were you an angry, you told me a story last time about Mexico. Uh-huh. So I don't think you were the exact same person that you are today as far as you're, you're, you're stoic, you're calm. You let us know this morning at your meeting, you cry a lot. <laughs> so, it's so true. It's true. Did that change the day you went in or were you this person and that just allowed you to, to be your true self? I think I've always been a reserved, humble uh, type person. Um, I guess 
you know, referring to the, the Mexico incident, that was more a situation I could have walked away from. But going back to that time of being a kid beat up when I was 11, the feeling that I felt related so similarly to that situation in, in Mexico that I couldn't let it go. So that was, you know, immaturity, but also it correlating with that previous event that happened. And I think that shows this 11-year-old, but the experience you had at 11 truly influenced so much of your thoughts and your behavior. So, And for many of us, maybe we never experienced such a traumatic event, but how much some of the stuff that happens at such a young age influence who we are as adults. Absolutely. When the day you were in the courthouse and getting ready to hear what the judge said, what was you said you knew you wanted to take advantage of every day, but was that the very first thought? Was it a complete surprise? And if so, what was immediate in your head? Well, yeah, it was, it was, it was shocking. You know, like I went in there thinking I was going home that day. That so you didn't say goodbye to people. You didn't pack anything. Right. Put like anything I away. thought, you know, like I was going to, this is the first, this is my first offense. You know, I had an attorney that was like, dude, like your, your first offense, you're going to be cool. Like probation, something like that. And then, you know, when I got that sentence, like it just, it, like I got really upset, but it was like, okay, like, that's the reality of the situation, but you know what? Like, I'm going to show everybody, like, including myself, like, this This is, like, it fired me up. Like, I knew, like, I was going to make a difference. I wasn't just going to, like, I was going to make every day count. So he says 20 years. Do you immediately start doing math? Like, okay, how long is that really? You know, we all know from watching Law & Order, at least, it's like, okay, um, you know, good behavior, all that stuff. So I didn't, I didn't know at that point. I just like. So you went in there like, I'm going to be 43. Yeah. Or like however I, old you'd be when you get out. It was, it was surreal. I was in shock a little bit and, you know, I didn't know how the system worked, you know, the good days. I didn't know any of that. So I had no idea, you know, and like the way it turns out is like for my sentence, Anyway, I was eligible for some good time. So, like, there's your day-for-day day time, and then there's a level system up to level four. Everybody starts off on level two, meaning that you get however many days there are per month plus 22 extra days. And then for good behavior, you can then go to level three, which is the same thing, plus 33 extra days, and then level four, which is as high as you can get, and that's 44 extra so days. So for every month you're serving, you're getting over two months of credit, basically. Right. And so then, you moved up to a level four, I assume. Yeah, I moved up to level four after about a year and a half. And uh, and then any program, like I did several different Votex while I was there, um, while I was away, you know, at different facilities. I did different Votex, commercial cleaning, um, uh, took... 99 hours of college credits through Rose State, so got a couple associate degrees and uh, got good time for, for college courses completed through that. Learned how to weld, operate heavy machinery, things like that. So anything and everything that I could do and take advantage of. But, you know, like the one, one of the biggest questions, you know, that I had going in was like, okay, like what led up? to me being here and how can I not do that again? What did you come to with that? Well, I mean, it took like, you know, being on drugs, like it probably took. When you say drugs, what drugs? So I, it started off like I got, when I, when I had the low back injury, I got hooked on painkillers bad. And I mean really bad. Like, I was at one point taking 800 milligrams of Oxycontin a day. That's a lot? I don't know. I don't take... That's a lot. What's a standard? What would a prescription be? Okay, so, like, as, as far as I remember, 
uh, with Oxycontins, they came in 10 milligram, 20 milligram, 40 milligram, and 80 milligrams. So you're taking 10 of 10 the highest of dose. the highest every day. Wow. And that was just to feel normal and to not be sick. So understanding like addiction, like I had no idea what I was getting myself into, you know, until like, and that was a very expensive habit. Like it got to where it was like a $300 a day habit. So you have to figure out a way to pay for that, which is where selling drugs comes in. Right. But even with selling drugs and making good money selling drugs, this is like severely impacting that. And so at this point, I know I have a problem so bad that I'm starting to try to seek help. And I ended up going to a methadone clinic. So a methadone clinic uh, basically provides you a synthetic opiate with opiate blocker in it to help you get off of whatever painkillers that you're on. I didn't understand that, like how that works. Like, okay, how's that going to make me quit all this other stuff? But I started doing it and then got a bunch of Oxycontins and crunched them up and sniffed them all. And then they had absolutely no effect because... The blockers. The blocker. And I was like, oh, okay. I see how that works now. I won't do that again. Um, <laughs> you, won't take, you won't take Oxycontin or you won't go to the methadone? Well, I won't take Oxycontin because it doesn't do anything. Right. Right? There was no effect. But they ultimately, like they, on methadone, they bring you up to at least, this was my experience, they bring you up to 100 milligrams and then they give you a blood test and then the next day they see what the level of how it's still in your system is and then move you up based off of that. So they ultimately had me on 180 milligrams of methadone a day. That's a lot. That's that's a lot. That's a ridiculous amount. And uh, so I was doing that, and that was a short-term fix solution, you know, so it was like $50 a week. Cheaper than $300 a day. Right. And then I also started doing cocaine. So So it doesn't block that. No. And uh, so I started off sniffing cocaine, and I did that so much so often that it messed up my nose to where I couldn't sniff it anymore. And I thought, hey, you know, like I took health science technology when I was in high school and I know how to do injections. You know, Sigmund Freud used to shoot cocaine, so it must be okay, right? And that'll save my nose. So right. I know how to be sterile about it so I can just start like shooting it, right? That's clearly, you know, the, the best option. Well, I like how you're putting a smart spin on such a terrible thing. Right. Like you're being smart about it. Right. And and the thing, you know, like the things that we can justify. Right. right. So I start shooting cocaine and, you know, I'm I'm smart because I'm weighing out each shot. You know, I'm, I'm using bacteriostatic water. This is why tracking macros is easy. For <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I'm to the point to where I'm shooting cocaine literally 15 times a day. So do you just have like needle marks all over your yeah, you vascular? I'm, I'm wearing like long sleeves all the time. And, you know, this got so bad. Like there was one moment where I'm. <sighs> no crying on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, man. Once it's like after the age of 40, it just. Like I don't want tears, to start crying. The tears come. But no, I'm, I'm in my bathroom. At the time, my two-year-old daughter and her mom are in the next room. They have no idea what I'm doing. Okay, like I'm hiding this. You know, I'm earlier in that day I had made up a double dose of a shot that I meant to split, but I forgot. So I'm in the bathroom, and I, and I I shoot up, and as soon as I do it, like I know I messed up. I just shot a double dose. I know I messed up. So I start freaking out a little bit, but I don't want to draw attention because I don't want them to know what's going on. So I get myself into the shower in the bathtub and the water's flowing over me 
and you know, I'm like trying to feel my pulse. I can't feel it. And I'm just like saying to myself, like, please God, like, don't, don't, don't let me die. Don't let me die. And, uh, you know, I get this vision in my mind of my daughter and her mom, like visiting my gravesite, and, you know, and I'm just like, please don't let me die. And, uh, and it passes. And you'd think like, that was the moment when I was like, okay, like enough is enough. And that's when I quit everything and, you know, turned my life around, but it wasn't, you know, like addiction the addiction is powerful. was so powerful that I somehow justified and literally was making up a shot like 30 minutes later, you know, and went to, to think back, like fast forwarding to the time in prison when I'm thinking about, okay, what led up to these decisions? How can I not do that again? And I'm thinking about that moment and I'm like, like how is the human brain capable of justifying that? Well, and I think it goes to show even, when you were in prison, you talked to me last time about how many people actually were coming to you for advice and using you as this person of inspiration, but how many of them actually wound up back? Because their, their moment, your moment was prison, but even for them, prison wasn't enough to say, let's get out of this. I mean, we'll talk about this, but you, you told me last time you wound up going to, what's it called, like a halfway house? Yeah, so there were several different phases. I went immediately to Oklahoma County. I spent six months there waiting to get processed. So that's then, just jail still. Right, right, so that's like waiting to get processed. Then I went to uh, Lexington for A&R, which is like assessment and figuring out what location they're going to send you to first. So I was there for about eight days. And from there, they sent me to a medium-slash-maximum security facility uh, in Cushing, Oklahoma, and I was there for 18 months. So you had a maximum security place where, although you're doing, you know, something terrible, selling drugs, you're not murdering people, mm-hmm. and they're probably murderers and yeah, there's equally bad types of people in there. In there, you know, uh, you get a timesheet every month that tells you like how many days remaining you have on your sentence. And there's people in there that they just get letters, life. You know, they're never getting out. They know they're never getting out. So the tension in the air in a facility like that, you can feel it because you know, like anyone, like all, all it takes is a bad phone call, a letter, anything that can just give somebody the fuckets, you know, and then something crazy happens. And did you witness that? Oh, yeah. Did I mean, for those of us that have not experienced it, is it fighting 24-7? Yeah, like, is it just... It's not necessarily like that, but I mean, like, it's like a lot of nothing and then something like, you know, seeing somebody get beat to death. So what kept you safe? I think, like, in that environment... Being six foot three and a monster well, helps, I assume. Everybody gets tested to some extent. Like, me being, you know, bigger, I was not, like, an obvious easy target. But it's, like, it's a predatory environment where people will prey on the weak. And... For somebody like me, it would be tested in the sense of maybe somebody would say something that was just slightly disrespectful to see if I would let it slide. And if I did, then it would become more and more and more, right? So I knew this going in. And so whenever there was anything that that would be the start of that, I would just have to nip it like, hey, um, you're not going to talk to me like that. You know, to know. In that demeanor? Yeah. So calm. Calm, like in any situation I would encounter, uh, I would go into it in a very respectful manner. Like, hey man, would you mind? I'd really appreciate it. But knowing in my mind that this is the environment, if somebody decided to be like, man, fuck you, you would have to immediately act with violence. You know, and that's just the way it was. 
So it's the way I describe it is like it's a rough grade school. I don't know what grade school you went to, but it'd be like a yeah. rough grade school where there's like <laughs> rules. Oklahoma grade school, is it? <laughs> not like New York. Okay, a rough public grade yeah. school. All right, where there's like rules that to you you might think like, dude, that's stupid, but you can't say that, right? You know, because it's just the way it is. Um, and I imagine knowing you, you were respectful to the guards and which helps you move up those ranks and probably at least gets them off of your back a little bit. Well, it's, you know, like I had like before going in, you know, me being into like bodybuilding and stuff like that, like I had made friends. So I used to work at a nutrition store at one point before I went in. So like when I was in Oklahoma County, I actually like knew a couple of the guards you know, and they're like, dude, like, what are you doing in here? You know, that, that kind of deal. But then there's one time, like, they come around regularly and do what's called shakedowns, which they come in and just have you get out of your cell, and they just tear all your stuff up. Like, they look through all your stuff, you know. And I had, like, like food that I had bought and commissary stuff, and I had it on the floor, like, all set up, and I had one guard come in and just came in and just, like, stomped on all my shit. And I was just like, dude, like, really? <laughs> I mean, like, damn, you know? So it was just like kind of one of those things. But, you know, I decided like my goal was I am going to get out of here as quickly as possible. So I will ignore the very short term sense of fulfillment that would come along with me acting out in a situation like that. Well, they're testing you just like the other Prisoners are testing. Right. But I know in this situation, There's no when this winning. person has control, I, I act out. They win, I lose. Maybe I feel better just for a moment, but then the repercussions of that are going to keep me here longer. So, you know, if I might have a guard, you know, I get to a new facility and we're out and he just says, hey, pick up that trash over there. And, you know, we're, the response they're looking for, man, that's not my job. Da, 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 da. I'm just like, okay, is, is there anything else you need me to do? You know, because once they get that kind of response, that sh- puts them off guard and they're like, okay, like, and then they don't mess with me after that. You know what I mean? I don't want to jump too far ahead, but does it give you a sense of satisfaction now knowing how successful you are? And not that a prison guard is not successful or a, a respectful job. It's a great job. But knowing where you are in life, well, you know, it's, it's funny, like, at one, like, when I was at the maximum security facility, medium mag, maximum, whatever, like, the, the unit that I was in, like, the bottom, it had two floors. So the bottom unit I was in was general population. The top unit was a SEG overflow reintegration program. Mm-hmm. SEG is, like, where you go if you get in trouble within prison, like, you go and they isolate you from everybody. You don't have anything in your cell. Like you have nothing. And this reintegration program they had on the top run allowed people, it was like a four month system that allowed them to reintegrate back into general population. So, you know, they had minimal things. And what my job was is I would go to the, uh, cafeteria and get a tray, a cart full of trays and give them their food in the morning. And like one of like, I created different businesses inside, inside, right. And one of them, like the people up there could not order regular commissary because of the restrictions, but they could order hygiene products, toothpaste, things like that. So what I would do is I would get extra trays and hook some people up with extra trays because they couldn't order extra food, but I was able to get them extra trays. And in return, they would order and give me like extra commissary. So it was like a trade system we had. Which is not allowed probably. Right. Okay. And so all the guards were cool with it because my job was only, I only had to do that for one shift, but I did it for all three. In return, the guards would let me get a few extra trays so I could do that. And the, the, the prisoners are happier. Right. So they have an easier job. Exactly. So 
I would always take like mine off the top, put them in my cell for me to eat later on and then, you know, do what I was going to do. And then there was one guard in particular that was like really like a stickler and uh, would only order, like I'd tell him the amount to order and he wouldn't order that amount. And so we kind of, you know, butted heads because I would deliver everything and be like, uh, we're three short. You know, because he didn't put the order in like I like I said it. You know, he's like, well, you, for now on, you wait and you take yours afterwards. I'm like, okay. But then I would take mine first anyways. Mm-hmm. So this went on several times, and uh, there was a point where we're short. He's like, let me guess, we're short again. You know, and I kind of, like, fell out of my normal uh, behavior pattern. I said, yeah, we're short yesterday we're short today and we're going to be short tomorrow which is to you and i normal discussion but to him not yeah yeah and so and i didn't realize it you know but i'm talking like that but the way i'm talking all of a sudden i see like other guards that are normally really cool with me kind of starting to get close and i'm like ooh, like (laughs) like something's going on here. So he's like, you just go to your cell. So I, I went in and, you know, went to my cell. And then later on I got out and I went to him and I said, Hey man, like, I want to apologize. You know, like I, that was like, I shouldn't have acted that way, but I just wanted to let you know. And this was a guy who had like, just for example, like if you squeeze between a, a couple people and say, Oh, excuse me, it's not a big deal. But if you do that same thing and say move, it's a little different language, right? And that's the type of person this guard was, right? So in my conversation, I said, hey, you know, I I just want to apologize for my actions earlier. I shouldn't have acted that way, and I'm sorry. You know, but I just wanted to let you know that to be respected, you have to give respect. And these people, a lot of them, they will get out. You know, so the way you treat people, it does matter, right? So I left that facility, and then, you know, it got to me later on that uh, that guard actually got attacked by one of the inmates and, and almost choked to death. So it was just like, wow, you know. Have you seen him? No. Have you seen any of these guards since you've been out? Do any come to the box? Uh, no, but, I mean, I had, like... I had more good interactions than I did bad. Um, like for the most part, like I had, like it was at one facility, like when I would go someplace, I would interact with very few people. I would do my own thing. I had my routine that I put in place. I would read, I would work out. I had my own routine and people would seek me out because they would just see me be consistent, you know? And so I ended up, training working with you know probably four to ten people at every facility i was at because they would just seek me out like hey man like how what, what do you got going on there and, and want to like work out with me want to work out with me want me to train them and uh there, there was one time where i was at this is at Bowley. this is a meet a minimum security facility so you've been like a few years of, into the system at this point right so i went from a and r Oklahoma County, six months, A&R, eight days, Cushing, Oklahoma, 18 months, Bowley, Oklahoma, minimum security, three and a half years, Medill, Oklahoma, work center, about 18 months, and then back here in the city at a halfway house uh, called Centerpoint, and I was there for about 18 months, something like that. So once you get to the minimum security, it's a little, you've proven to be less of a threat probably maybe not more freedom, but it's a little less stressful for you. Yeah, it's, it is, you know, more freedom, less restricted, like at the medium slash maximum security facility. I mean, when something happens, somebody gets attacked, something like that, they lock the whole facility down and you're just in a cell, you know, you're in a cell with you and your roommate and that's it. Like you're just, you know, it's a little room and there's a toilet in there and like, I mean, that's it. So you're going to the bathroom in front of one another. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a, 
that's just how it is, you know? And it's, it's amazing, like, what just becomes normal for you because that's just how it is. Um, but, yeah, so I was at Bowley, and they make a call, like, over the speaker. I'm in the workout area. There's a workout area outside. And they call me, like, over the speaker to come to, like, like the main headquarters, like, guard unit. And I'm like, oh, shit. Like, what's up with that? Like, and uh, so I go in there, and um, it's like one of the lieutenants or something like that. It's like, come on in, have a seat. And he's just, like, kind of looking at me, and I'm like, like, what's what's going on? And he gets like a pad paper out, slides it over to me and just looks at me and it's like, I need you to help me out with the workout program. <laughs> I was like, oh man. Like I didn't know if you know, yeah, I know what in was, trouble. Yeah, yeah. Like I didn't know what was going on, but yeah. So, you know, I even had, you know, guards and things, you know, want me to help them out with workout programs. Um, so yeah, man, it was, it was crazy. So you're wrapping up. I know at the halfway house you had mentioned last time, I think it was your brother that owned the taco stand. Yeah. See. So, yeah. So when I got to the halfway house, like at this point, I've learned how to weld. I learned that in Medill, learned how to weld. Used to rebuild dumpsters at a a, a dump site. Um, Learned how to operate heavy machinery. So when I got to this halfway house, and this is where basically you get the opportunity to work during the day and sleep there at night. So, so you I, leave and come back. Right. So I had the opportunity of either taking a job welding or taking a job working for a place called Big Truck Taco, uh, which is a really like awesome place. They have awesome food. Um, but my brother worked there at the time. He was a manager there, I believe. And they had like taco trucks. They have a restaurant and taco trucks that would go out. And the thought, like I decided that I needed to take the job that made me the most uncomfortable because I think that is incredible that throughout this, if people are wondering, it's like you constantly challenge yourself, even to this day. That's what's, that's, what's most impressive. No easy road. Mm-hmm. That's that's it's, it's very cool. Yeah. So you take this job at the taco truck, right? Because I I'm knowing like, in the environment I was in, like I would only talk to a handful of people, and it would be like when I talked to somebody, I would ask them like, "Hey, what are your goals? What are you gonna do when you get out?" And the typical answer would be like, oh, man, you know, I'm going to re-up on some stuff, get back on my feet. And, you know, basically saying they were going to go back to what they were doing, but mm-hmm. only temporarily. Just to get going again. Right. And so I'm not like, man, why don't you just stay in here? Then? You know what I mean? Because that's what's going to happen. Did, do you keep in touch with any people uh, that you met in there? There, there are a, a, a few. Like, there's actually one guy here that I was locked up with that now has his own electrical business. And when you say here, he comes to the box? Yeah, he comes to the box That's here. Awesome. We were locked up together. Um, and yeah, and it's cool. You know, he's, he's, he's done really well for himself. Uh, but I would only talk to people that had a plan. You know, those are the only people I would interact with. Everyone else, I would have my don't fuck with me face on. So I would be very closed off and look unapproachable. What's the five people you surround yourself with? That's really what you were doing. Exactly, right? To the extent I could in that environment. Yes. Right? So I did not have, like, people skills. And I knew, I knew, like, my passion has always been since I was 11, you know, bodybuilding getting the body stronger. I knew I wanted to do that and probably some type of like counseling. Like those are the things that just came to my mind. Like that's what I need to do. That's how I can help other people. That's how I can serve other people because I've always been an influential person. But, you know, like during that time in my life, you know, it was happened negatively. Um, right. You were an influence just in a negative way. Right. At, for, at that point. And I've always been one to, like, excel in my environment. 
like one of the the best times in my life when I did health science technology in my junior year of high school. I had a really good instructor, and he really cared, and he really like held me accountable and taught in a way that appealed to all the senses. Like the way like I ended up being student of the year that year and in high school. In, in high so school. So for people listening, you know, a lot of times you hear these stories and like, oh, this kid had a terrible childhood. It was a matter of time before, you know, like they say death or prison. But you were the student of the year. This was only junior year. Like every year before that was like not good. So Okay, so you but but you still had the smarts about you to be student of the year. Right, it was this professor had the ability to pull that out of me knew how to stimulate me in a way that kept me like into it. So like I, you know, competed in a medical terminology competition, you know, that year. And they just, he had a system of teaching that just really pulled me in and uh, got me engaged and involved. And and that was a really good year. Uh, But then the next year, like there was no guidance. It was just like, okay, here's the material. Uh, Let me know when you're ready to test. And things just started going downhill again. <clears throat> but I excelled at that. And then like when I was dealing drugs, for example, like I, you know, excelled up in, in my operation and that, you know, and not that that's a good thing. Right. Or, you know, being in, you know, I've, I've always like wanted to, you know, seek out the best. And that's something you continue to do to this day. I feel like that's still a couple of steps away. But I want to get there. So you you leave, you put yourself in that situation where you're forced to be social with people you wouldn't be. Right. So, yeah, I, you know, having the option of welding or working for Big Truck Taco, the thought of working for Big Truck Taco was terrifying to me. Well, and free tacos. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was terrifying to me because I, you know, I hadn't interacted with people. You know, and I knew it was going to force me into that position. And if I wanted to work with people, if I wanted to do like personal training with people, I was going to have to talk to people. Right. And that was something I was very uncomfortable with. So I put myself in that position and I actually took the window position of the truck. The most social position. Exactly. Because it made me the most uncomfortable. And I knew I was going to have to desensitize myself to that process to do what I wanted so to do. you get put to this halfway house. How scary is that first day where you're going to leave? And I mean, you told me the story of you had to ride your bike and you had your brother had to like, yeah. So show you, I forget. I, I literally, yeah. I had my, had my brother come pick me up and drive me on the route that I would take to ride my Meanwhile, bike. You've lived here your whole life, right? You know, it's changed a lot. Sure, in seven years, you know, yeah. Yeah, like, uh, but just the thought of, like, me riding a bike on the street with cars, like, oh my, like it, was, it was terrifying. Well, have you seen Shawshank Redemption? Yes. It reminds me of, like, Brooks. Uh-huh. Where, well, he, clearly he did, like, life, almost. Yeah. But he gets out, and he's like, I can't handle this. Yeah. I need to go back. Mm-hmm. Like, well, it's because, you know, there is a structure and there, you, you get used to that structure and, and knowing what to expect. Do you think that structure is why you're so structured today, or would you have been this way regardless? Because, I mean, for those that don't know, you got up at 3.30 yesterday, 3.30 today. We'll talk about your morning routine, but that's some heavy structure. Yeah. Meanwhile, your woman over here is sleeping in until 6.30. What did I say? Say an early day. Um, so structure and guidance is something I have to have in my life without it. Like that's basically the situation I was in. Like, especially once I hurt my back and I was dealing drugs, it was like no structure. You know, I didn't have like before, like my rock, my identity was my strength training. That was my routine. That was what everything was built around. And when I got hurt, like I can actually remember a time like I'm on drugs, but I'm starting to get back in the gym and I'm working out. I'm doing a set of bench press and I start to get like some pains in my chest. 
And I'm like, oh man, I gotta quit working out. You know, instead of like, like I need to stop doing drugs, it's oh man, I gotta, I gotta quit working out. Your passion. Right. You're ready to give up. I mean, that's how people, right? People die every right. day doing these drugs. But yeah, that was my, that was my routine. So I have to have, like for me, I have to have structure. I have to have routine. So good thing Trammy's pulling up because we're just about the point you, you know, you, clearly things go well enough, a big truck, you get out. What, um, first of all, where'd you go? To, to your, your mom's? Yeah, so... My stepdad picked me up like the day that I got out. Like I didn't know I was getting out that day. I imagine you have like a countdown and you're ch- checking off the well, days. So they, once you start getting close, like I thought I was going to, it was going to be a few months before I got out. I knew it was getting close, but they, once you start getting close, they send your file in for review to make sure, you know, you've gotten the days you're supposed to get, or if you have more days, you know, they like review everything. And so they just, they called me in the office, uh, the day I got out and I was like about ready to go to work. Um, you know, I'm walking my bike up to the, the exit door and they're like, Hey, you know, call me in. And they're like, uh, you're going home today. And I'm just like, what do you mean? Like you, you, you're going home today. So I'm like, okay. Like, so like I need to call somebody to pick me up. Like, yeah. I'm like, okay. So, like I should like pack my stuff up and like bring it up here. Like, yeah. Okay. So like once I do that, like I can just go outside and yeah. And meanwhile, you've been leaving and coming back. So they trust you. Right. There are probably people that get there and leave and yeah. don't come back. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just like, like, it's just like a, a, a very surreal moment. So my stepdad comes and picks me up, you know, and I leave that day and, and it's just like, you know, like, did you go to work? Did you go to big truck tacos? Um, not, not that day. I don't think so. I went to the house and it was, it was weird. Cause they like, you know, like had like a little party for me and I felt just so uncomfortable because it was like, I had to find a new normal. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, I felt lost. Like, so, you know, people are like celebrating and I'm just like feeling this overwhelming, like sense of anxiety because I don't know what's going on. You know, I've got to find that new normal. Um, so how, yeah. How long did that take? Well, I, you know, I went to, like, I continued working at big truck in, in the pro, like while I was working at big truck, I got a membership at YMCA because it was on the my, local one. There's one around. There's here, one, yeah. there was one on the way from where I stayed and uh, Big Truck Taco. So I got a membership there and I would get in workouts like either before work or after work because I hadn't, you know, been in a gym in forever. So I was like so But pumped. that's probably scary as well. You got all these people around you. You know, I, you know what? I felt right at home yeah. at the gym. Like, cause dude, I had been like, I hadn't, you know, being locked up like they, like in most facilities, like there is no weights or anything like that. So I didn't have access to like resistance training stuff. So I was just like so pumped to, you know, to be able to work out and have dumbbells and, and stuff like that. So yeah, I got my workout on. And then this gym that I'm at now is actually the gym where I had my back injury like 16 years ago. The Y? No, this, this gym now. Oh, this was where we're it, sitting. Yes. This it was. Oh, okay. It was the weight room at the time. And uh, I hurt my back deadlifting. What was your best deadlift? It was like, oh man, what was it? It was like five, I want to say it was like 565 was what the, was the, the weight that I hurt my back on. I hurt my back, I injured it, and, uh, and yeah, that, that happened in this gym. So I used to work out at this gym, so I came back to this gym, and while I was still locked up, I studied for and took the test for my ACE certification. So when I came in here, like I'd already come in here to work out a few times, kind of scoped it out, you know, see, you know, who the trainers were. I knew like, dude, I want to be a trainer at this place. So I came in and just kept it real with the owner. I said, Hey, I just got out of prison. I'm ACE certified personal trainer. I'm looking for somebody to give me an opportunity. And, uh, 
and he gave me one. You know, he gave me the opportunity. So, I, you know, I had a membership here, and I started shadowing, you know, some of the trainers here at the time. And as I'm shadowing, I'm like, dude, like, I could do that. What year is this? This is 2012. I forget because I got this out September. I got out September 11th, 2012. Was the day I got right. out. Yeah, so I'm, you know, shadowing, and then very quickly, I get my first client, and uh, I start doing one-on-one training, and I basically get to the point to where I can't take on any more people one-on-one, so I start doing some, like, group training, and at the same time, I started going to a CrossFit gym in uh, Yukon, which was close to where my parents lived, because I lived with my parents uh, my mom and stepdad for probably about six months after I got out, I lived with them. Um, yeah, started going to a CrossFit gym because I had, I first saw a, uh, when, when I was in Medill, Oklahoma, I had a TV and I saw a woman's CrossFit competition and I was just blown away. I wonder what you saw it on, on TV back then. Probably some rent like ESPN, ESPN probably had like a yeah. blurb or something before it was big so you I mean you were locked up when CrossFit exploded yeah and then you get out yeah so I saw that I was just like what you're like no way did you I'm I'm seeing like women like you know doing like lifting 565 yeah and I'm just (laughs) like what you know and I'm like dude like that looks really cool Clearly it is very cool, but I'm going to have to cut it off right there. We go on for another hour, and we are going to bring you that next week in part two of my interview with Rob. As you can see, he has an amazing story, and it continues to get better. If you enjoyed this week, you're going to want to listen in next week. And again, you can find Rob on Instagram, on Facebook, and you can check out his box, Twice Bitten CrossFit. If you're ever in Oklahoma, I highly recommend you dropping in or just reaching out to him, dropping him a line. He loves it. He's motivating. He's inspiring. And he will definitely help you get your life together. So check him out. Hope you enjoyed the interview. We look forward to being back here with you all next week on the Own Your Eating podcast.